let's return to our series through Genesis by going to Genesis chapter 1. Last week, I detoured from our regularly scheduled programming in an attempt to give the church a New Year's charge that while we are living in an ever-changing world, we need to just continue steadfastly. Keep doing what we do in 2022. So with that, we're going to get back to what we do, and that's going verse by verse through the Word of God. Sometimes when you go verse by verse, there's not these really good preaching points to end on. So I'm doing the best I can with this message today, but I feel like it's going to kind of be a hodgepodge of several thoughts thrown together, but it is what it is. Let's begin Genesis chapter 1. Let's read verses 26 through 31. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat." And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Amen. So we've already covered verses 26 and 27 in previous messages. If you have missed those, I would encourage you to listen to those and get caught up and get all the, the little things that we've covered that I can't recap. But I'm just going to jump into it this morning, okay? After God created mankind in His image, after His likeness, we're told in verse 27 that God created them male and female. And we spoke about that last time, but I just want to touch on it a little bit this morning. Because they were created male and female is the reason why God could say to them in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Just a side note for now, because I expect to get more in depth on this as we get into chapter 2. But when you take verse 27 and verse 28, along with Genesis 2, verses 22 through 24, and really the rest of the Bible that talks about these issues, we find that be fruitful and multiply, it's intended for those who are biblically married. I'm not being ugly this morning when I highlight some of the things I'll highlight, okay? I know some of us have some things we regret in our past. All of us probably do. And so I'm just know my heart, okay? Um, but it's intended for biblically married couples. He made them male and female. And in chapter 2, a, ma- a man shall leave his father and mother and shall do what? Cleave unto his wife. Therefore, Adam and Eve were married. They were husband and wife. And by the way, Christ will use what is recorded in Genesis 1 and 2 as the reason why we should not be so quick 
to dissolve a marriage at our own pleasure. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Christ said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. And then Jesus said this, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Adam was confined to one wife, amen? If he were to divorce her, he had no one else to marry. But I guess they didn't fight before sin entered the world. Anyway, um, he had no one else to marry if he were to put her away, put her away. And it is this example in the beginning which Jesus used to preach and to teach that marriages are intended to last. Matthew 19, verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you or allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus goes on to speak about divorce when there has been unfaithfulness, and we can get in those debates later because I do think there are extenuating circumstances. There's abuse, there's abandonment, there's things that we can talk about in a different setting while we're looking at other verses. But for now, I'm only highlighting Adam and Eve were husband and wife. And so to be fruitful and to multiply is to be within the confines of a biblical marriage. And this also is teaching us that marriage is to be between one man and one woman ordained of God, instituted in perfection, intended to be for life, and it is honorable. Well, let's move on to the next thought here. We could do an entire series on creationism versus the theory of evolution. I've only briefly highlighted some things as we've been making our way through this chapter, and I want to do so just a little bit more this morning. One of the cornerstones of the theory of evolution is natural selection. The idea is that the best traits which help a species to survive are those which in time will be what's handed down to each successive generation. And those things which hinder the survival of a species will eventually be weeded out because it doesn't help with reproductive success. I came across this verbiage. I Forgive me, I think it was from Wikipedia, amen. Um, but in describing survival of the fittest, it says this. In Darwinian terms, the phrase is best understood as survival of the form that will leave the most copies of itself in successive generations. And again, listen, I'm not being ugly this morning, but I just want to ask you, how does homosexuality fit into the theory of evolution? If we are progressing as a species through evolutionary processes and we're becoming better over time, then how do we account for the inability of homosexuals to reproduce but still claim that we're evolving for the better? It doesn't make sense logically. On the pro-homosexual website, the Gay and Lesbian Review, they posted an article entitled Evolutionary Origins of Homosexuality. It was written by John Hodes, and he states this, quote, The essence of natural selection is to favor and conserve beneficial genetic variations and eliminate maladaptive maladaptive ones. Thus, if homosexuality were a genetic error, it would have been removed long ago from the gene pool via natural selection. Now, that's an interesting quote there because there is an acknowledgement 
that homosexuality goes against the survival of a species. You can't reproduce. I, I think you understand that with no help. But instead of accepting that as proof that homosexuality disproves the theory of evolution, the conclusion is, well, no, there's no genetic error because through the process of evolution, homosexuality would have been weeded out if it didn't help the species. Is everybody following my line of thought here? So I want you to understand the reason that homosexuality, and you can put any sin in there, but in light of male and female, the reason why homosexuality has existed in successive generations of human beings is because we are all sinners. And we've all been given a free will to live any old way we please. Nobody's forcing you to live a certain way. You have the choice. Now, I don't want to spend our entire time on the issue of homosexuality because if one is honest with God's Word, you have to draw the conclusion that it's a sin. Let me say that again because I only heard two amens. For those who are honest with the Word of God, you have to conclude that homosexuality is a sin. There's no denying that. Now, I ended up in studying this, and I didn't put any of this in my notes because it was a lot of gibberish, but there's a guy who wrote a book, I think it's entitled God and the Gay Man or something like that. I can't remember what it's entitled, but it's, it's God's Approval of Homosexuality. And I ended up listening to an hour of one of his um, sessions where he speaks to people, educating them on how to properly interpret the Scriptures. And um, so I understand that there are some that will look at the Scripture and say, oh, no, it's justified. But I think the Bible is absolutely clear. Amen. Um, we're not even going to go there this morning, but I just want to point out how it disproves evolution. Because if evolution is natural selection and the survival of the fittest, then you can't keep that in the gene pool if you can't reproduce. So it actually disproves evolution. Now, the phrase in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, and again, I just got a hodgepodge of thoughts this morning, okay? I'm sorry. But the the phrase, be fruitful and multiply, it's been used to justify what I think is a debatable teaching. I'm not sure it's worth getting into, but we're going to anyway. It's, it's what's called the quiverful doctrine, or any variation thereof. There's, there's a teaching that uh, we should have as many kids as we possibly can. I'm not against you if you have 15 kids. I'm not against you if you have no kids. Okay? The Bible does say in Psalm 127, verses 4 and the first part of verse 5, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy or blessed is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Full of children. But does that equal a command to marry and procreate? Is Genesis 128 a command to marry and procreate? In Charles D. Proven's 1989 book entitled The Bible and Birth Control, he argues that, quote, be fruitful and multiply is a biblical command for all. He writes this, Nowhere is this command done away with in the entire Bible. Therefore, it still remains valid for us today. So if you'll forgive me for just a moment, I'm going to lean heavily on Matthew Poole. He was a commentary back in the 1600s. A commentator, sorry. He's not a commentary, amen. <laughs> he, he, he was a commentator who lived in the 1600s. I really like his point of view, and I think he captures the spirit of this phrase here in Genesis 128. He wrote this, It is a command obliging all men 
so far as not to suffer the extinction of mankind. Thus, it did absolutely bind Adam and Eve and also Noah and his sons and their wives after the flood. He's got three observations. That's the first. In that observation, that makes sense, right? If Adam and Eve didn't procreate, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) We're all related. Um, If Noah, his sons and their, their, their wives, if they didn't procreate, we wouldn't be here. So it was necessary for them to marry and procreate in order for us to have church in 2022. But Matthew Poole goes on to observe, it does not oblige every particular person to marry, as appears both from the example of the Lord Jesus, who lived and died in an unmarried state, and from His commendation of those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And he cites Matthew 19.12. And from St. Paul's aberration of virginity, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, verse 8, verses 26 and 27, and verse 32. He cites those. If you read those verses, you'll find a very strong scriptural argument that none of this is to indicate that it's a command for all of us to get married and to have children. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, Paul says, but I speak this by permission and not by commandment. And he says, but to the rest speak I not the Lord. And then he says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. In other words, I think Paul is saying, look, God has not given us a blanket statement on the issue. He has not given us a blanket requirement concerning this. In fact, Paul is clear, those who can contain themselves and refrain from physical intimacy and remain unmarried are blessed. Is everybody okay? Is this like new for everybody? Or is it just because everybody's tired and wants to go home already? We're getting out of here early. We didn't hear choir. Amen? Just perk up. And so he says the unmarried are blessed because they'll be able to serve God without distraction. And that's a fact. I have to think about my wife. Man, I got to hear about how my children are caught up in the drama of the teen group. Paul says when you don't have kids and you're not married, you're not cumbered about those things. (laughs) That's what he says. And, And so we shouldn't view unmarried virgins as cursed. Really, we ought to hold them in very high esteem. That's what the Bible teaches. Therefore, what we really find in the Scriptures is there are blessings in being married and there are blessings in remaining chaste and single. One group experiences a blessing the others will not. But both are experiencing God's blessings nonetheless. Is everybody with me? Matthew Poole's third observation on this thought was this. It is here rather a promise or benediction than a command as appears from Genesis 1.22, where the same words are applied to the brute beast who are not subject to a command. And because if this were a command, it would equally oblige every man to exercise dominion over fishes and fowls, etc. He writes, which is absurd. Because how do we know what's going on in the depths of the sea right now? We have dominion over them, but we're not sitting there watching them. Okay? That's what he's getting at. It is therefore a permission rather than a command though it be expressed in the form of a command, as other permissions frequently are, as Genesis 2.16 and Deuteronomy 14.4. And it's that last line that he wrote that really captured my attention 
when he said, it is therefore permission rather than a command, though it is expressed in the form of a command as other permissions frequently are. Let me read you the two verses he cited, Genesis 2.16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. What is God saying? Though God says this is a command, He's really saying you have permission to eat from all these trees. But did they have to eat from every tree? Or could they choose today, I want to have a grapefruit? Because I'm on the grapefruit diet. <laughs> and I'm seeing it through in 2022. Maybe that's what Adam was thinking. Okay. Deuteronomy 14.4, it says, These are the beasts which ye shall eat. Sounds like a command. The ox, the sheep, and the goat, and other animals are listed in the following verses. But God, He said, ye shall eat these beasts. It was not that it was required that everyone shall have to eat those animals, but you were permitted to eat those animals. You didn't, what were the ones I listed? You didn't have to, you could choose not to eat a goat. That makes sense to me, amen. Uh, I'll take the ox. Amen, get a nice porterhouse or something like that. You didn't have to eat lamb chops. So it was permission, not entirely a command. I hope this is making sense. Now, it is true God created the earth to be inhabited. Isaiah 45, 18 makes that clear. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. But this does not mean that everybody here today has to be married. It doesn't mean that all who are married are going to become fruitful and multiply. It breaks my heart, but I know some that are very desirous to have children, but they can't. And I don't want to get on a slippery slope where I start to look at those who have a, a quote, quiverful that, man, they're blessed of God. But this poor couple over here that can't have any or only could have one, you're not as blessed as they are. I'm not going down that road. So you don't have to be married. You can remain pure. God will bless you. You can be married. You can have children. And you can have the the blessings of of children. Amen. Uh, Amen. And and listen, we've seen both sides of it. And if you've been around churches any length of time, you've seen both sides of it. You've seen those who want to have kids and can't. And those who can't have kids eight years down the road all of a sudden have a kid. God miraculously gave them children. So, um, listen, all I can tell you this, if you're in, if you're in that boat, God knows your heart. Amen. Amen. God knows your heart. And if you'll just trust God's will for your life, His ways are best. Amen. Amen. Make your request made known unto God. And then believe that nothing is impossible with God. Amen. He's able. Now, moving on to the next thought here. We see next that God says to replenish the earth. Now, for those who hold there being a gap, in between verses 1 and 2, where they believe something cataclysmic must have happened to this earth, in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, they point to this phrase as their proof that this earth was once inhabited before, that there was a pre-Adamic race. Their thinking is, in order for the earth to be replenished, it must have been full before. After all, this is the same thing God said to Noah after He flooded the earth and told them to replenish the earth, and obviously the earth was inhabited before them. And so it leads to this conclusion that the earth must have been populated beforehand. Well, before we jump to that conclusion, we need to understand the meaning of this word replenish. First of all, it's a word that's used with a lot of latitude. It's used in a lot of ways and applications, but simple enough is the Hebrew word means to fill. That's how it's defined. The same Hebrew word for replenish is used in verse 22 where God says to the sea life, be fruitful and multiply and 
fill the waters. It's the exact same Hebrew word. And so if you believe in the law of first mention, which I lean heavily on when studying your Bible, the law of first mention here, the Hebrew word is to fill. And so replenish just means to fill. And it was a way that they spoke back in 1611. It was a fancier way of saying fill. Like somebody may say, I'm replete with happiness. Does that mean you were plead ahead of time and now you're replete? Uh, I'm picturing a guy like in a jester suit. And... Where am I at? In addition, Webster's 1828 dictionary even defines replenish as to fill, to stock with numbers or abundance. And he uses the example of springs being replenished with water, which I think is a very good way to view what God is commanding them here. Um, Therefore, Adam and Eve, were, they're being charged with filling the earth, not repopulating the earth. And it would be unreasonable to think that Adam and Eve by themselves could fill the earth. Boy, you talk about childbearing. Among some other things that we won't get into. Uh, I mean, how long did Adam live? Yeah. And so that would have been a lot on this one couple. And so um, it would be unreasonable to think that. They were to be fruitful and multiply, and that would put into motion... The process of replenishing just as a spring is replenished with water successively over and over. And so it wasn't all dependent on Adam and Eve. Therefore, replenish continues the process of multiplying, uh, like I said, just as a spring is replenished. We, we see next that God tells them to subdue the earth. They were to take possession of the earth. They were to make use of it by bringing it into subjection to their use. Listen, there's no question that God wants us to be good stewards of the earth, okay? Uh, I'm for that. I'm not for tree hugging, but I am for... Let's be smart. But God here says to, to use the earth uh, to, to subdue it. And so there's nothing wrong with using fossil fuels, for example. I'm trying hard to filter this morning. I, I'm trying to be sweet and polite. we got visitors here. But this idea that we're not supposed to use fossil fuels is just nonsense. You ever wonder, maybe perhaps that's why God actually flooded everything and gave us the chance to pump Grandpa into our car? I'm just saying. I'm just throwing that out there, food for thought. Um, now, if you, if you tie this together with subduing the earth and having dominion over God's creation, which we've covered before, we, we understand subduing here. We're, we're taking dominion. Okay, God has allowed us that privilege. We've been crowned with honor and glory and giving dominion. We saw that in Psalm 8. So I'm not going to recover this again. But I want to quickly take note of verses 29 and 30 before I get to this awful finale of this message, okay? I know, this is brutal. It, this is brutal. It took me all night. I know, it's brutal. Um, which, is, which is a combination of it's good, but it's bad. Amen? It's, it's brutal. I challenge you to get up here and talk every week. Amen? Thank you, Adrian, for laughing at me. My help meet strikes once again. Now, where was I at? Verses 29 and 30. Thank you. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And this is yet another interesting thought in light of the theory of evolution. As I mentioned earlier, the theory of evolution is big on natural selection over a period of millions of years. 
But in God's creation, are you catching here in verses 29 and 30, it was not a dog-eat-dog world. Are you catching this? Everything in, in the beginning were vegetarians. How miserable. <laughs> they ate nuts and seeds and fruits. That's what the Bible says. It wasn't that there was survival of the fittest. There was no death. Death didn't enter the world until sin and then death by sin. So before there was sin, there wasn't death. They weren't animals eating each other. They were all eating herbs. Or however it's worded in the King's English. Amen? I, I love it. Uh, the tree yielding seed. <laughs> so don't get this idea that there was this evolutionary process and in the beginning, you know, Adam's out there having um, sausage for breakfast. No, it was all this veg vegetarian kind of a thing. And so I hope you can see, I bring this up because I want you to understand sin has wreaked havoc upon this earth. This is not how we were created. I've already covered that. We, we were created in the image and likeness of God. But sin messed that up. Christ had to come and now we're being conformed back into His image. But creation now, the Bible says it groans. Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. Why? This is not how God intended it. But we messed it up because of sin. Now, I'm not pleased with this sermon, but stay with me on this last thought. I, I keep saying that so people have mercy on me when we're done. Um, now, look at verse 31. It says this, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. At the conclusion of God's creative works, we see in verse 31, God sees everything and He makes the declaration, it was very good. Everything was perfect. On the previous days of creation, with the exception of day two, God said it was good. But now God says it was very good. Why this distinction? Why is the whole very good, but the individual days only good? How are we to make sense of this? Should we even make anything out of this? Well, one thing's for sure. This wording isn't because God didn't do so good of a job on day one, two, three, four, five, but then He did a very good job on day six. That's, that's not the truth. Um, because God doesn't make anything flawed. He doesn't make anything defective. And, and, and listen, you cannot get something good out of mediocrity. Let me just get up in your living room for a minute. You see, because we've got, we've got a bunch of people out there that are believing that, God, if you'll just weigh out my life, and if it's, if it's good enough, you're going to let me into your heaven because now I'm very good. When in reality, the whole of your life has been nothing but mediocrity. At best. At best. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so it's not that all of a sudden God had this mediocrity of good and now it's very good. No, um, that's not the case. And while there are people convincing themselves that they are worthy of God's heaven, the overwhelming majority of the single days of our lives are pitiful. Did you read your Bible every day last week? Did you pray? Did you witness? Are you giving? Are you faithful to church? Well, I think God's just going to weigh it all out and it's going to be very good in the end. You cannot get very good out of your sinful life. Amen. That's right. Psalm 39.5, Verily every man at his best state is altogether vanity. You're nothing. That's what it means. 
Thank you for attending Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. <laughs> Yet many are trusting that the day's going to come, that their good is going to outweigh their bad, and God's going to declare you good enough to enter into the joys of our Lord. Psalm 62, 9, Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance. They are altogether lighter than vanity. You cannot trust your life's work will be found very good when your life is over. For there is none good, no, not one. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we offend in one point in the law, then we have offended in all. So don't think you're going to get very good out of not good. Amen. What did we need? We needed a Savior. We needed somebody who was very good. Somebody who was perfect. Somebody who could come and die for us. Now, it could just be that all was very good when all was said and done because Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. God created everything for His pleasure, so obviously when He was done creating, He could look at it and go, that's very good. He created it for Himself. That didn't go over well. Uh, Many say it was now declared very good because it was after God made man in His image and after His likeness. Well, that does make logical sense. We know God is perfect, and if mankind is created in His image and likeness, then it stands to reason that once man was upon the earth, God could say, that's very good. I appreciate what the family Bible notes try to communicate on this thought. It states, each part is separately pronounced good, but the whole is very good because it is only in the whole that each part finds its perfection. The thought process there makes sense to me as well. Matthew Henry, in his writings, used this as an opportunity to teach that we should not judge anything before the time. And I find that an interesting thought. He wrote, not all was made, or now all was made, every part was good, but altogether very good. The glory and goodness, the beauty and harmony of God's work, both of providence and grace of this creation, will best appear when they are perfected. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 tells us, therefore judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. And I just want to, uh, I just want to try to capitalize on what he was saying here. And I want to remind us all that Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us this, God makes everything beautiful in His time. In His time. It's said of Jesus in Mark 7.37, He hath done all things well. Let me encourage you this morning. Let patience have her perfect work, that you might be entire and wanting nothing. Let patience have her. What, what am I getting at? God may, God may be doing something on day one and on day two, but when the week is over, if you will, and you look at it all together, it will make sense how God was doing all things well. It may not make sense while you're going through it. God, why would you create plant life before the sun? That doesn't make sense. But you know what? God does everything well. And when we step back at the end, we can see everything has its point and its purpose. And, and God was working His process. And so God's working in your life. Can I get an amen right there? Amen. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I want you to trust that God knows exactly what He is doing in your life. In Christ, when all is said and done, it will all be very good. The good work has already begun in our lives and it will be declared very good one day because we will drop this robe of flesh and we will be glorified and we will sin no more. Now, we find God here, and, and, and get this, 
God here, He takes a step back in verse 31, and He looks at all His creation, right? And God saw it all, and He said it was very good. And God is giving us the example. If I've lost you in this message, this is the main point. I want you to get this. God is showing us that it is good for us to reflect upon our works and take stock of where we are at in our life. We have been given the ability to reflect. This puts us above the animals, amen? We we can think about our past, our present, and our future. And God wants us to take advantage of this ability. We go beyond just animal instincts, is what I'm saying. We can reason, we can ponder, we have the power to think upon our ways. I have a book entitled, Fish Don't Think. And and if I remember correctly, the whole point of the book is a fish will strike your bait if it's presented the right way because that's how they are made instinctively to strike. If a hunter uses scent to attract a deer, the deer isn't wondering if there's a dude in a tree stand that put it out. If a deer hears some antlers being rustled together, he's not thinking, I bet there's Jim Bob back behind a hunting blind somewhere rattling these things together. And don't get me started on turkeys. Have you ever seen a a hunting show on turkeys? They put out those stupid looking turkey things and the turkeys go up to them and start fighting them. And and it's just standing there. They're dumb. I mean, you don't go up to mannequins in the mall and be like... I don't know where that came from. But the, the point is, we have been blessed to be able to think in a way that animals can't think. This is for a very important reason. We are meant to reflect on our ways and ponder our paths. How is our relationship with God? Haggai 1.5 Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Psalm 119.59 I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Lamentations 3.40 Let us search and try our ways and turn again unto the Lord. So I want you to consider your ways today. Take a step back and just view your life for a moment. How would you describe it? How would you rate your life? Would you look at your life and say, it's pretty good. It's good. It's very good. It's okay. It's bad. It's very bad. How would you rate your life when you step back and you view it all? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Are you reprobate this morning? Are you even in Christ this morning? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Can you say you are in the faith? Why don't you stop trying to do things your way and go ahead and give your life to Christ And let Him straighten out the mess you've made in your life. Now, for those of you in Christ, you can still mess up your life. Some of you are. 
And as you take stock of your life, how would you rate it so far? Because here's the deal. Many are disgruntled knowing they are not enjoying all the blessings which God intends for them to enjoy. And yet, they are not following God's ways. And yet they're mad that their life is a mess. If you violate God's word, you're not going to have a very good life. And so they're not following God's word, but wait a minute. Doesn't God do everything good and very good? Wouldn't this mean then that God's word is very good? And and knowing that to be true, wouldn't it be in our best interest to just go ahead and follow the word of God? And yet we struggle. Doing things God's way. As if somehow we're going to do better with our life than God can. And yet the Bible is clear. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, reverence your husbands. Children, obey your parents. I don't want to do that. Nobody's going to tell me to submit. I'm so sick of these rules. I can't wait to get out of this house. Well, you just don't know what she's like. All she does is nag. What does the Bible say? Husbands love, wives submit, children obey. I don't want to do it God's way. No wonder your life isn't very good. You might as well say amen and act like we're a Baptist church this morning because it's about to get real up in here if not. I'll take a lap by myself. If, if God tells us, honor me with the first fruits of your increase, then why don't we? I just can't afford to. You can't afford not to. If God's word says, honor me with your tithes and your offerings and I will open you the window of heaven, pour you out a blessing, rebuke the devourer for your sake, then why don't we do it? Well, I think I can do better with my money than God can. If God says to study His word, to pray, to go to church, to witness, then why don't we? Why do we have such a difficult time doing that which is very good? We claim we want God's best, but then we refuse to do God's best. Deuteronomy 5.16, Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee. It's not hidden, it's right there in the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6.18, And thou shalt do that which is right and good, in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee. I don't want to do what's well. You don't know my parents. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kids. You don't know my husband. Let me ask you this morning. Have you made a mess of your life? And just be honest. Have you made a mess of your life? I can promise you it's because you're not following God's word. Listen, I'm your friend this morning. As you reflect upon your life, if you'll be honest about your situation and why, God will help you. Remember the prodigal? We can make the argument both were prodigal, but you know what I mean when I say the prodigal son, the young one that left, took his inheritance, went to a far country. He spent it all on riotous living. And the Bible says he's in the hog pen. And what does the Bible say? He came to himself. You know what he did? He he took stock of his life. And he looked at his life and he says, boy, I have made a mess of my life. 
Everything I've tried to do hasn't gone right. I've, I've just ruined the family relationship. I've taken money. I've, I've spent it on riotous living. I, what am I doing in this hog pit? I've tried it my way and it doesn't work. He says, I'm going to go back to my father's house. And I'll, I'll tell him, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But I know that his hired servants have it better than I do out here. He made a mess of his life, but he got it right. Because he returned to the Father. Have you made a mess of your life? Do you want to have a very good life? Then you've got to be honest with God. And you've got to start following His Word. If there's anything you need to get right today, would you please do so? Let's pray.